Hi, welcome to the Landscape of Crane's Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletti, your host. Thanks for joining us. So often it seems when we talk about building new housing in Cleveland, our conversations revolve around luxury high-rises and those dwellings in fashionable neighborhoods. And while Cleveland does need those, what about those people who are far from being able to afford to live there? How do they obtain a house and establish permanent roots? One of the groups that helps low-income people own their own homes in Cleveland is Greater Cleveland Habitat for Humanity. And we're pleased to be joined by John Habit, the president and CEO of Habitat, who just recently announced he's going to be leaving his post after more than a decade. John, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Dan, for having me. We often hear about Habitat for Humanity on the news. It often seems we see former President Carter out building houses and advocating for the organization, but I'm not sure people really know how all of it works. Can you give us the organization's mission? Uh, Habitat for Humanity mission is this. We believe everybody has a right to affordable, safe housing, and that's everybody in the around the world. So this is just not a United States thing. Habitat is in, uh, oh, probably five or six dozen countries around the world. Uh, we're also in every state in the United States. Um, so we believe everyone has a right, and that's a really tall mission because uh, there's, you know, 10 million people. <laughs> but the way the Habitat does it is this way. Uh, we believe uh, in uh, home ownership and affordable homeownership and making that available to people who otherwise are closed out of traditional lending situations uh, for a variety of reasons. I thought to myself as I prepared to have our conversation, I've really been blessed. Not once in my life have I ever been concerned about where I was going to live. My parents still live in the same house where I was born. I've had wonderful housing in my life in Cleveland. I never had to think about that, but that's something you had to think about when you were growing up. You, had, you were a family with 11 kids, and you guys moved around a lot. Was it a financial question of sometimes housing being scarce? Well, it was an inner-city family, 11 children. Um, there were issues um, other than housing. There was obviously some substance abuse issues and domestic violence issues. Uh, and it seems like um, we moved frequently, usually following a bad night, where um, there was some violence going on in the home and um, trying to flee that violence. You know, it's one thing if you have one or two kids trying to move quickly. It's another if you have 10 or 11. Uh, this is before they had plastic bags. Uh, I can tell you how many times you end up putting all your possessions in a grocery bag, if you remember the old grocery bags and um, a rainstorm and the bag breaking and all your few possessions are on the ground. Um, so out of that experience, I have firsthand knowledge of um, the families we serve and some of the challenges and trauma and sometimes nightmares that they incur along the way um, to try to obtain stable housing. Um, stable housing is so essential uh, to uh, a child and a family's stability and mental health. So having those experiences, uh, it's one of those things I look at now, and because I had those experiences, they were blessings for me now as I try to serve others. Uh, and I think what happens along the way, I'm not a psychologist, although I certainly have opinions <laughs> about those things. I think what happens along the way, the your root experiences of what you experience be before you're five and six years old kind of shape your worldview. 
so uh, those experiences certainly shaped mine, and uh, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to channel some of those experiences into such a positive transformation and transform transformational way in, in, in what Habitat does, because we transform lives, we transform families, and we even transform inner city neighborhoods and bring them back online to be good places to live again. You became involved with Habitat first as a volunteer through your daughter's Sunday school in the early 90s. What was that experience? Well, you know, in retrospect, it was wild <laughs> because <laughs> I remember I have my two daughters there from their Sunday school and the Sunday school, you know, the kids are there and the dads and moms and we're working on uh, building a brand new house on the uh, near east side here in Cleveland. And back then they had volunteers do the roofs and everything. And, and I was up on, um, they had framed in the roof, you know, there was no floor or anything. All there was the frame and there I'm up on the roof pounding in nails and I see my two daughters way below and I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, this could be ugly if I fell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't fall. Fortunately, my dad was a painter, so I'm not afraid of heights. I didn't fall, but I went on uh, thinking what a wonderful organization uh, this is. And here they are in the city with everybody else is leaving, but Habitat is in the city uh, trying to make new lives for families who uh, otherwise would be still fighting housing instability and that struggle. Outside of that volunteer opportunity, you obviously held a number of different jobs, including being a vice president at the Greater Cleveland Growth Association. So how did you end up at Habitat in 2011? That was a long journey for me because uh, I knew I had a great job at the Growth Association. I was vice president for government and transportation, uh, and transportation included infrastructure and air service, things like that. But then government advocacy, back then the Greater Cleveland Growth Association was the big chamber of commerce in the country. And uh, if the Growth Association sought uh, to accomplish something, it had a good chance of doing so. And, and obviously, I was the face of the organization with a lot of public figures, uh, public officials, uh, and also uh, corporate CEOs I worked with a lot because uh, the business community was trying to orchestrate its influence, mostly for the benefit of Cleveland projects and, and the facilities. Uh, it wasn't often that the Growth Association actually went hardcore on a strictly business issue. But what you did was have a, this collected of influential businesses who said, what are we going to do to promote this city and do good things for the city? So I was a growth association's lobbyist for almost 15 years. Before that, by the way, I was a city of Cleveland's lobbyist for four years. Uh, when George Voinovich was first elected mayor, he hired me and had me uh, be the city's lobbyist with Columbus. And uh, George was such a wonderful mentor. Um, uh, and he had such um, integrity and respect in the legislature uh, and was so bipartisan. But when he, he – and a very reasoned, logical person. And uh, so when, when George looked at a situation and, and said, let's do something about it, people listened, okay? And I got lucky enough, if you will, to carry the bags for the city in Columbus for four years. And I will tell you that because of George Voinovich, um, we accomplished so much in the legislature uh, while he was mayor of Cleveland. You know, most mayors are content or overly occupied with running their cities, of course. But, but George had a sense that this uh, city of Cleveland was a pulpit in a way uh, and we reached to uh, ex uh, reach a lot of different corners of the state and, and, and really 
talk on subject matter maybe outside of the traditional um, uh, city municipal matters. But I remember uh, George had, I think it was, I forget the Senate bill's name, but it was the first major reform bill of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. That is what George Champion and a guy named Sam Speck, who was a senator from Southern Ohio, was the lead sponsor on that legislation, which eventually became law. So having that experience, I did take a couple of years off to practice law, uh, but I wouldn't missed a lot was that um, when you're a lobbyist, you're working on big picture stuff. And uh, I had to trans transition to working on very small, detail-oriented matters. And, and I loved becoming the subject matter expert in some uh, <laughs> some some area of the law. But what I missed was the big impact. And so when the Growth Association invited me to come back and uh, become their lobbyist, I really was enthusiastic about it. And there were many, many things we accomplished uh, during that period of time at the Growth Association in Columbus. Uh, oddly enough, what would happen, um, this kind of speaks to somehow Cleveland is not very well organized. The Growth Association would get these things passed in Columbus, and other cities would beat us. <laughs> they would use these tools first because it took a while for these things to settle down and get figured out in Cleveland. So other cities took advantage of these things uh, that were, you know, we had intended for Cleveland. Uh, eventually, Cleveland got around, and, and I can, you know, point to a number of discretionary laws in effect that Cleveland uses on a regular basis now for uh, economic development and uh, neighborhood revitalization. When you come on board in 2011, this is a tough time. The country and Northeast Ohio in particular are digging out of the Great Recession. The foreclosure, the predatory lending issues that were part of the middle part of that decade are still being felt. What was the situation you found when you took over? Well, I think the habitat here in Cleveland mirrored what was going on in the city. It was just like abandonment and decay. Um, and you would, you know, you'd go up and down these city streets during that time and you'd see so many foreclosed houses, and uh, it was not unusual to see five, ten, even fifteen houses on one street boarded up. Uh, the organization kind of mirrored that because we were down to doing one house a year during those years. So it, it reflected, I think, in a, in, a, in a significant way, what was going on in the city itself. Uh, how I approached it was. Uh, <laughs> I thought, what a fantastic opportunity. Hmm. <laughs> you can't go anywhere but up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I will tell you, those first few years were so joyful. Um, the chance to uh, basically use all these tools I've acquired in other jobs and to really focus them in on this one organization, which it was doing something so near and dear to my own experience. Um, it was it was total joy. It was nonstop work. It was 60, 70, sometimes 80-hour weeks. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I would drive to work in the morning with tears of joy coming from my eyes because it was I just felt so fortunate to be in the chair and to have this opportunity uh, to help other families. John Habit joins us for The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. John is the president and CEO of Greater Cleveland Habitat for Humanity. We're talking about the work that they do. John, let's take a little bit deeper into how Habitat works. How does a family apply for a Habitat home? And then is there a set of criteria they have to meet in order to be eligible? Dan, uh, we don't advertise 
Uh, and if we did, I can imagine (laughs) what we would get, but, uh, basically it's word of mouth organization, uh, and people find out about us and they have to fill out of what we call a, um, a preliminary application where they have to determine whether they meet three basic criteria. Uh, and those criteria are number one, you have to have a need for safe, affordable housing. Number two, you have to have the ability to pay a mortgage which has 0% interest financing, okay? So it's a 0% mortgage, but you have to be able to pay that mortgage. Because we don't give houses away. We we are a hand-up organization, not a handout. And number three, you have to have some skin in the game. And by that, we call it sweat equity. And that manifests itself in a couple ways. The obvious way is hands-on. They're going to either be working on their house or somebody else's house. And they're going to have to come up with a very modest down payment. Um, those are your three initial questions uh, or qualifiers, okay? If you can answer yes to all those, and almost anyone can answer yes to those, uh, we will do a more in-depth application where we will look at tax records and et cetera. Uh, bad, you know, I don't want to sound like a used car salesman here, but bad credit, no problem, no <laughs> credit, no problem. Uh, but that is the Habitat way. But what we do look at, is did you pay your rent for the last 12 months? Because somebody who pays their rent on time every month is likely to be a good mortgage payer. Um, and how much debt do you have? Because we want to make sure the debt you're walking into the, our situation with does not burden you, okay? Because we know in, with the families we're working with in the uh, 30 to 80% of the area median income, there's not a lot of extra every month. So you need to be a pretty good at... Um, managing your monthly bills. So once they answer those questions, they fill out the in-depth application. Um, Now, if you have too much debt, for instance, I think it is now, if you have more than uh, $1,500 in collections, we say, go get on a plan to pay those collections down to a thousand or whatever. uh, And then you can come back to the program. Um, uh, If for instance, you're paying, uh, you're living with your mom, and you're not paying rent, well, how do you know what it's going to be like paying a monthly obligation? We kind of project what your monthly mortgage payment is going to be and require you to establish a savings account and save that month, that amount every month. So you get used to having that reoccurring bill uh, in your monthly bills. Uh, Having said that, now we received, I think, pre-COVID, we hit 2,000 pre-applications. I don't know how many hundreds of applications. Uh, but it, when it all comes down to it, we probably select about 35 to 40 families a year for uh, to participate in our program. And on any given year, you'll have a number of those drop out for a variety of reasons. They're either not doing their sweat equity or they ended up getting jobs, which took them above our income limits, or they lost jobs. Uh, but they can all come back to us if they qualify again. What's the process for obtaining the homes themselves by Habitat? Are these homes or properties donated to Habitat? Are you buying them? How does that work? We um, do a – we have a number of situations, okay? Uh, we obviously, coming out of the great housing crisis and recession, uh, there were so many vacant abandoned houses available. Uh, we called it the low-hanging fruit. A lot of these are great houses. You put thirty or $40,000 in – you'd have a fantastic house, okay? 
So we took advantage of those. In fact, we did not build a new house for five years here because we had such a supply of abandoned houses uh, to keep us busy. And by the way, it's always better to rehab a house and build new because you could probably serve two to three families uh, with the same cost as compared to uh, building a new house for one family. Do you concentrate your efforts, these building efforts, these rehabbing efforts in particular parts of the city of Cleveland? We do. Now, our, in our previous history, we kind of went where the house was or where the lot was or where you could get a free piece of land. Um, but what occurred to me early in, into my job here at Habitat was, uh, let's re recall what I just said about going up and down these streets, seeing 5, 10, 15 abandoned houses. Uh, I said, why don't we come up with a plan to focus our, our, our housing activity and see if we can use it as a catalyst to spur other redevelopment activities uh, and revitalization. And that is what has actually happened. We have focused in one neighborhood, for instance, where we're very active now called Buckeye Woodhill. We started there in uh, 2016 uh, with rehabs. And then in 2019, we started building new houses. By the time we're all said and done, there's gonna be over a hundred houses in that area that are habitat families. Um, so this is gonna increase uh, the values of the remaining or the existing homeowners there of those properties. And also what we see is that it, it uh, stimulates other uh, activity, people uh, fixing up their own homes or people moving in or coming and buying properties on the street and, and rehabbing them. It also has a really significant impact on crime. And we, from data produced by the Cleveland Police Department, we can show that where Habitat makes an established present, crime is significantly reduced. Um, the other thing that doesn't come to mind immediately, but we're a stabilizing force in the schools. Now, you take a typical Cleveland school. This is not our data here. Uh, if you start with 30 kids in the classroom, it may be by December, half of those kids have left and 15 more kids have come in. Okay? And by the end of the school year, you may have 10 of those, which means that, const that classroom has constant... Um, movement and disruption. Hey, I don't know if, well, you, you sound like you grew up in one house and one neighborhood, so you don't know what it was like being the new kid in school. No. I do. I do. And many times. And, you know, it's uh, that teachers, if it's one kid a year or two kids, that's one thing. But when this is a constant stream of turnover in your student population, you know, the teacher barely has time to teach, let alone uh, uh try to maintain some, 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 some semblance of normalcy in these classrooms. Uh, what we do to our educators today is, I think, very unfair, but I guess it's the last resort. Um, and thank God the schools are there to provide so many services that are not traditional for education, but they've basically been the safety net for some of these kids who otherwise would really be struggling even more uh, but for the school stepping in. It's an unfair burden we place on the school. Thank goodness they're there, and, and they, they've pretty, had a pretty good attitude about stepping in to fill the gap. As we look back at 2021, obviously a challenging year for everyone due to COVID, but it was a pretty fruitful year for Habitat. How did it go with, in terms of building homes and getting people in them? It, it was amazing. <laughs> I, I'm still kind of stunned at how successful we were um, you know, in 2019, I think we did 24 houses, 
And then in 2020, it dipped to 15 because, you know, we were closed. Everybody was closed for a long time. And and then when we came back, um, we weren't letting volunteers. We weren't inviting them back uh, immediately. And so our workforce, we had previously in 2019, we had 3,200 discrete volunteers doing 92,000 hours. That's like the equivalent of 46 full-time years for a person. Wow. Wow. we lost all that, ex- and then gradually it started coming back. We did not reach those levels. Well, we didn't get to half of those levels again last year. But you got a group of hardcore volunteers uh, that are coming back two, three, sometimes four days a week. Uh, and so they came back, and we were able to uh, increase our production of houses to 26 last year. It, I, I'm still stunned by that. Uh, we were thinking maybe we'd get to 18 or 19 but it worked out in a great way. And you never know what's going to finish and what's not going to finish. For instance, we probably have 30 active construction sites right now. Um, some of those houses will be ready to sell this year. Some will wait until, well, generally if we started by now, they'll be done this year. But, you know, you start houses in the middle of the year, you may not be done until the following year. But it was a great year. And um, we not only did more houses than ever, we had more donations than ever. And our Restore, which is our retail thrift store, the only one in Cleveland that sells used building and residential housing uh, uh, materials, for instance. Uh, And there is a market for used toilets, by the way. Mm. That that broke a record uh, substantially last year. And by the Restore, by the way, the Restore, uh, while it's not our primary mission, does some fantastic things uh, because uh, we're a thrift store for families on a tight budget. Uh, who are looking maybe to do some modest home improvements, maybe buy a new couch or some new new uh, lamps or furniture. Um, and the other thing is we keep all that out of the landfill. So there's a really positive environmental impact that restores have as well. Those are the two major funding components then, the restore and donations? Restore, donations, repaid mortgages, because as people repay their mortgages, because we're the bank, okay, uh, as people repay their mortgages, all those payments go all those proceeds go back into constructing more houses so now what are you going to do with yourself after all these busy years how do you what's next for john habit well that's a great question um uh you know i my garden i garden is my hobby so and you know you can do that probably about four or five months a year (laughs) (laughs) i could shovel snow the others but it's getting a little tough on my shoulders um i you know as i approach this dan um I've been working this town professionally for almost 45 years, um, and I've had such a wonderful wealth of experiences, even some of those early childhood experiences that came out of struggle. Um, there's so much insight I've obtained and skills I've obtained over the years, uh, not only from growing up in a challenged environment, but also becoming a successful professional in town. Uh, you know, I've got a perspective that not too many people have in Cleveland. Uh, you may have people who've been working this town just as long, but they didn't come from such challenged beginnings, so they don't really kind of understand uh, what it's like on the other side. I mean, I have that experience. I know what it's like on both sides. I know feast and I know famine, and I feel kind of a responsibility to somehow f- figure out a way to keep giving, uh, giving back uh, to others using those uh, experiences. 
the community can certainly use your assets and we appreciate everything you've done for folks in Northeast Ohio. John Habit, thanks for joining us today. Congratulations on your great work. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate the time. John Habit is the president and CEO of the Greater Cleveland Habitat for Humanity. He'll be stepping down soon, but he's gracious to join us, I should say, for the landscape of Cranes Cleveland podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Dan Paletta, and we'll talk again soon.